This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. We start with a four-day work week. Oh, how nice would that be? How about a long weekend? Every weekend. We've talked about this before. Should we go to a four-day work week? Now, the BC Green Party are proposing we give this a whirl, give it a try in BC. I've got Sonia first to know standing by. First, have a listen here. to This is Trey Smith, Blackbird Interactive. This is a gaming company in Vancouver. They went four-day work week, and listen to what he says about it. It's really been win-win for everybody. You know, productivity is maintained the same. The quality is as good as it's ever been, but most importantly, just people are happier and people are healthier. Okay, let's discuss with Sonia first to know now, leader of the BC Green Party, and very pleased to welcome Sonia back to the show. Sonia, thanks for coming on. No, delighted to be here. Thanks, Mike. Okay, let's talk about a four-day work week. Tell me about this idea. How would this work in BC? Well, I love that you opened with uh, with Trey's comments about people being happier and healthier. And, and uh, I'll imagine if we started making our policies oriented to that, uh, the kind of outcomes we could get. So the trial that we're proposing is a three-year pilot uh, incentivized by tax breaks for companies that sign on to the pilot, agree to go to a four-day work week with their employees with no loss of income and not cramming 10-hour days into four days, so 32-hour weeks. Uh, And in exchange for that tax credit, uh, that tax break that they would get from the provincial government, they would share data back to the government about productivity, employee well-being, employer satisfaction. So this goes along with many, many trials that have happened around the world for four-day work weeks, and one that just finished in the UK, 61 companies, almost 3,000 employees, and 92% of the businesses that just finished the UK trial said that they are staying with a four-day work week, which is what tends to be out of these trials. The employees are happier, workers are healthier, happier, they're more satisfied, but the employers and the businesses also benefit. They see um, better productivity, they see their costs go down, they often see their revenues go up. So it really is, as Trey says, a win-win. Okay, one of the things you said there jumped out at me, like we're not talking about a compressed work week because some companies have said, okay, you can work four days a work week, but you still have to work the same number of hours per week, just work a longer shift. You're talking about actually working fewer hours, right? Like actually take out an entire work day. Yeah. Yeah. How? how, And and, and, the data shows really effectively that that, uh, in most jobs, uh, having somebody at their desk or at their job 40 hours a week versus 32 hours a week, you actually get the same amount of productivity out of that person. Okay, what would you say to someone, Sonia, who's listening to that and just shaking their heads and saying, this is like fantasy land stuff, what are you talking about? Like, if you work if you work less, one day less, how are you going to have the same productivity and get the same amount of work done? 
Well, uh, you know, I'm uh, very excited by all the data. And so if anyone's shaking their head, they can look online at all the trials that have happened. I'm just going to cite a couple of things here. Sure. Uh, in Iceland, uh, 2015 to 2019, uh, over 2,500 workers went into a shortened work trial then. Results were so uh, positive that now in Iceland, 86% of Iceland's working population now has shorter work weeks. Uh the uh, the one from the UK that just came out is really interesting. 71% reduction in burnout, anxiety, fatigue for the workers. Uh, but for the companies, they said there was a, a substantial decline in people leaving. So they didn't have the, you know, they didn't have the effects of the great resignation that's ongoing now. Uh, a substantial decline in sick days for people. Uh, having that three-day weekend gives people enough time to, you know, kind of get all their errands done, get their family time in, get ready for the next week, get some rest, volunteer in their communities. So I think that what we have to realize is not to let our imaginations fail us, that of course we can organize our, our working lives in a different way, especially when we have the data that shows that it makes people healthier and benefits our society, uh, as well as benefits the right. businesses that are able to do it. Speaking to Green Party leader Sonia Furstenau, should BC go to a four-day work week, or at least try it on a trial basis? So if this is so great, like if the outcomes are so incredibly awesome, like you've got better, better productivity, happier employees, people not getting sick, why mm-hmm. doesn't everybody, why don't all these employers just do it voluntarily? Because this is, this is like, it's not like this is a new idea. This has been kicked around literally for decades. I remember, <laughs> I remember decades mm-hmm. ago writing newspaper stories about a four day work week and it's never taken off. Like if it's so great, how come employers don't just don't do it? Well, it, it actually is taking off in a lot of places really? around the world and including here. You got merit as an example, but I, I'll say, why don't people try it? They should try it. I uh, I did. I went to a four-day work week with my staff in the legislature office. We've been at it for two, and uh, we're often recognized for punching way above our weight, a two-person caucus and seven-person staff. And I've seen the benefits uh, with my staff. Uh, the retention has been awesome. The team is amazing. Very few sick days uh, and uh, amazing output. I think that the, the incentive here is yeah. to really help businesses get over that initial hurdle of, you know, how, how will I do this? So here's a tax break for you. We're going to give you uh, a, a financial incentive to try this out. Right. And there are a lot of corporations, a lot of organizations, but the four day work week global organization supports businesses to do this, gives them the tools because there isn't a one size fits all. And that's the, yeah. that's what I like about this proposal. We're not saying here's how you're going to do it and you must do it. No, you can well, opt in to a to a pilot and get a financial reward for doing it. Right. That's one of the interesting things about this too. Is it's not it would not be a mandatory or a forced change. It would yeah. you're asking employers to buy into it by giving them a, an incentive. Now, if you do give an employer a tax break if they decide to try this for their workers, obviously that's less tax revenue flowing to government to spend on things like healthcare and education and social services like how much would this cost like how much how much would the government sort of give up in foregone revenue if you actually did this i guess it would depend on how obviously how many people take how many employers try it right but do you have any ballpark on how much it would cost 
Well, and again, this is really, this is an interesting uh, way to look at it, because in the UK trial, what they found was that uh, people had better health outcomes. So one of the ways that we are spending a lot of money, and I heard you're talking to uh, the head of Doctors of BC coming up about our very struggling health system. So imagine if we created working conditions that with the, we have a lot of evidence and data to show that a four-day work week actually helps people be healthier, not just physically healthier, but better mental health, lower levels of anxiety and stress. So if we actually uh, were to move in this direction, we would, act, we would see a reduction in the burden on our healthcare system because people would be healthier and better. Okay. And I think this is a really important thing to, to recognize. When I, you know, somebody asked me yesterday in an interview, like, well, you know, companies just want to grind out everything they can from their employees. The problem with doing that is you you grind your employees down to the point that they can't give you the best that they've got. And right. I can tell you from experience, my the four-day work week for us, uh, my staff are extraordinary. They give everything they've got. And then... They get that three-day break to to you know have the rest of their yeah. lives. They want to they want to live or they want to work to live, right? Not just live to work. Right. And I think we can recognize that you know this promise of technology and and how that would relieve us of all of these tasks and and what we've seen over the decades is people are actually working longer and harder than they ever and okay. uh, not for better compensation. So here's a way to to put people's well-being at the center. Okay. Got a lot of people talking, got a lot of attention with the idea. Thank you for coming on today to talk about it. It was my pleasure, Mike. Thank you. We're introducing legislation to implement a national freeze on handgun ownership. What this means is that it will no longer be possible to buy, sell, transfer, or import handguns anywhere in Canada. In other words, we're capping the market for handguns. As uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau speaking last year on the handgun freeze in Canada, that is now the law of the land in our country. You can't purchase a handgun, you can't import a handgun, you can't transfer a handgun to someone else. So what does that mean for people who own handguns now, and especially for people who are competitive sports shooters? Let's check in with Don Dealey now. Uh, Don is a competitive pistol shooter represents Canada at international meet. She's just back from a, a big competition in Thailand. And I'm very pleased to welcome her back to the show. Don, thanks for coming on today. Hey, Mike, thank you very much for having me. It's always a pleasure. Yeah, it's great to have you again. So, Don, when were you in Thailand for this big competition? I was in Thailand at the end of November, beginning of December. It was uh, my world championships, and um, which we only have every three years. They're hosted by the International Practical Shooting Confederation. Uh, we refer to that as IPSC for short. And uh, it's like the Olympics. It travels between different countries. And we had, <clears throat> we had been stalled on this due to COVID. So 2022 was uh, our chance to shine. How did you do at the competition? <laughs> not as well as I would have liked to. Uh, oh. I came down with a stomach, yeah, not, I came down with a stomach bug. Um, I was uh, of the Canadian women that went. Granted, we all shoot in different divisions. I did finish highest Canadian woman overall, but um, 
We did have a gold medal podium finisher in senior men's classic division, uh, which was really wonderful. We had some very, very top-notch uh, young shooters from Canada, several of whom are from northern BC, and they did extremely well especially when you consider that the individuals we're competing against in many cases are professional shooters from countries with uh, very positive uh, firearms um, acceptance. So I think all in all, Canada is extremely well. Yeah, if you're uh, competing and you've got a bit of a, a, you mentioned stomach bug or the flu or something like, that's got to, does that throw your aim off? It threw a lot more off than <laughs> <laughs> Oh yeah, yeah, I mean. it, it it can, you know, because you're you're running a course of fire where you have to your your whole focus is on getting through it as quickly and as safely, obviously, as you possibly can, and as accurately as you can. So when you're wrestling with things going on in other parts of your body, it yeah. can be a little disconcerting. Uh, I guess I guess the only bright spot of that was that I, I was not the only one by far. It was. Um, it was rather kind of entertaining in a black kind of way, but uh, we are a very supportive sport and any help that I needed uh, was right there from people in other countries. So, okay. you know, it was a really, really positive experience. It was a great thing. Okay. Let's talk about this handgun freeze, Don, because you sure. compete in like competitive pistol shooting. How many handguns do you own? Well, I'm not going to tell you that because okay. <laughs> I own a few. I have several that I do use for competition. The majority of the handguns I own are competitive guns, and they're spread across several different divisions because in my sport, each division we shoot requires a different style of handgun. And Mm. if I go to a match and I have one that breaks or I have a malfunction, I want to be able to have a backup gun that's there right away so I don't have to be concerned about whether or not I can finish the match. Um, there is a little bit of uh, consternation among, you know, law enforcement as to how many is too many. I'm not stocking an arsenal by any means, but it's like any other sport at this level. When you go into a competition, you want to be as well prepared as possible, and that means having backups for your backups. Right. Okay. So how is this handgun freeze now going to work for someone like yourself? Like you heard in that clip we played from justin trudeau yeah yeah she is he has now said you can't you can't buy a handgun you can't import a handgun you can't transfer a handgun to someone else so does that mean that you know for someone like yourself who owns handguns now you'll be allowed to keep them but nobody else will be allowed to get one well i'll be allowed to keep mine but in the event that they break or in the event that i can no longer obtain replacement parts in the case that they break uh then i'm done you know, right. I, I won't be able to buy anything. I won't be able to uh, replace anything. I won't be able to um, say, oh, well, you know, I can just borrow a gun from somebody else in my division. Because at my level, everybody's guns are tuned for each person. So right. somebody could pick up my gun and go, whoa, I don't know what to do with this. Right. Um, and so as a result, if anything happens, and I'm, I'm effectively dealt, you know, I'm effectively done, and so are the other 5,000 Ipsic shooters in this country. Right, and how do you feel about that? Because I know that one of the other things that Justin Trudeau has said about this is that, well, we understand that there are competitive uh, sports shooting federations, and this is an Olympic sport, but if someone is like an Olympic-level competitor, well, you know, they'll be exempted. I, I believe that's the rule, right? 
That 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 hasn't become uh, effective yet, but Trudeau has made it very clear that the only athletes he considers elite are those that compete in Olympic or Paralympic events, and that is a handful. That's none of us. Our sport is, we are a member, IPSC is a member of um, the Global Association of International Sports Federations, right. and it is a full member, which means that we have... You know, the IOC knows we're there, but there has not been and there has been interest in our sport moving forward to become an official Olympic event. But Trudeau is referring specifically only to Olympic sports. He has no, uh, dare I say, no intention or no interest in what I do or what is done in USPSA events or IDPA events. We have heard that the federal safety minister has been dealing with members of our organizations, but I haven't heard anything to that effect yet. Hmm. We've had, yeah. So as far as, as far as I know, that's, um, that's, you know, shouting down a hole, but well, we you know, are not. The, th- the yeah, thing sorry. is though, I mean, like if, if he says that we're going to give an exemption for elite level sport shooters who are like Olympic or Paralympic quality shooters, you know, mm-hmm. that doesn't I'm like, here you are, you're, you're not going to the Olympics, but you've just got back from an international competition in Thailand. You travel around the world to compete at these events. These are sanctioned uh, events in, in this, this sanctioning body you mentioned. So it doesn't like, does, is that fair to say to someone, well, if you're an elite level shooter, you, you know, you can keep doing your sport. But someone like you, Don, you know, you're not elite enough. I mean, sure, you're traveling around the world to these competitions, but that that's not elite enough for us. Is that the way you kind of read it? Yes, definitely. <clears throat> yeah. uh, and I think it's the perception of, of the handguns that we have versus the uh, versus the firearms used in Olympic sports like, uh, you know, bullseye and pentathlon, you know, biathlon. And uh. <clears throat> excuse me. And I think I think. You know, I I definitely feel, and I know I can speak for other Ipsic shooters, that we definitely feel like, uh, you know, the back end of the horse um, and that we're not elite enough. But what is elite enough? We, we've just come back from a world championship. Now, yeah. there are over 100 countries that hold sanctioned Ipsic events. 100 countries. There were something like 2,000 athletes at our world championship. And that's just one thing. Wow. So I don't know where where does it become elite enough. I, yeah. I know how much I train. I know how much my my uh, my cohorts train and practice. And we do this to be good, which means we're safe. We're we're reliable. We are all absolutely above board legal. So yes. where do we as a group become elite enough? Yeah, maybe there's too what many of us. I don't know, you know, because the IOC has been very quiet on this in Canada. We we've had no noise coming from them at all. What about growing your sport? Like for like a young person that might come to you and say, "Wow, I'm really excited about this sport that you're involved with. Could you help me? Maybe you could be a mentor for me, or help me get into this, or train me." I mean, is that basically not not allowed now? Because if if someone does not own a, a handgun now. They're, they're basically disqualified from getting into your sport? That's correct. They can't. Our sport wow. can't grow. Uh, I can show people. I can take people to a range and under my guidance and, and 
you know, me being right there with somebody, I can walk them through the sport. Uh, they can take the uh, exams and the practical shooting uh, training necessary because we, as six shooters, we have another entirely different qualification method that is outside that which is mandated by the um, by the federal government firearms act so we've got another layer of training on top of everything else yeah but once that person gets to that final point i'm like sorry you know you've you've done the intro material but that's as far as you can go because you can't buy a gun now i can't give you one of mine right Uh, i can't transfer one of mine to you so they're sunk I mean, how, do you, our, how does that make how does that make you feel like you know if you have a young person who says boy I'm excited about this sport I want to get into it how do you feel about telling them that well sorry not not really I, allowed I, I'm, I'm I'm livid about it I mean you and I've talked yeah. about this it's I can't really repeat what I think about it on air but um, you know people who want to get into my sport are people who have a genuine uh, interest in in learning firearms safety and luring firearms accountability and to have to turn people away and our sport draws you know draws participants from all ages i didn't start till i was 54 so yeah yeah so when somebody comes to me and says hey this really looks like fun it's really interesting it's great it's tremendous we have amazing camaraderie we have it's a terrific thing to do but i can't help you right (laughs) you know you're kind of you're kind of done on this Okay, Don, congratulations on all the success you've had in, in pistols, competitive pistol shooting. Thank you for coming on to talk about it today. I appreciate Thank it a lot. Thank you so much, Mike. I really appreciate it. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hey, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about our stresses and strains on our healthcare system right now. And as you've been hearing on the news this morning, the BC government has just made an announcement of expanded cancer diagnosis treatment in British Columbia, $440 million announced by Premier David Eby here in the last hour or so for cancer care. Let's discuss that and other issues now with my guest, Dr. Joshua Gregane, president of the Doctors of BC, and I'm very pleased you could join us today. Dr. Gregane, thank you for coming on today. Thank you very much for having me, Mike. Okay, what do you think of this announcement from the Premier, $440 million for cancer diagnostics? that make a difference? Absolutely. I think anytime we can spend resources on cancer screening, I hope, as well as treatment and diagnostics, that's a good thing. Definitely, as our population ages, cancer of all sorts continues to be a challenge. 
What, what are, how would you describe the, the situation in our province right now when it comes to cancer treatment and cancer care? Because I think for a long time, the perception on our system was, yeah, we've got our stresses and strains, but if you get a serious illness or disease like cancer and you're in real trouble, the system is world-class and you get awesome care. Would you say that is still the case here or people now waiting a little longer to get the care they need? One of the challenges in the Canadian and BC healthcare system is waiting, unfortunately, and you're absolutely right. It used to be that if you had something serious like cancer, both would you have the ability to get screened for to try and catch it early as well as then get treatment when it happens. And we've heard from the BC Cancer Agency and many of the physicians that that wait time is now affecting even cancer care because of the strain that the system is under, which is really unfortunate for a multitude of reasons but definitely those who are most vulnerable who really need quick access to service. Yeah, and I think this is why we're seeing a reaction from government with the type of announcement that we heard today. Let me play a clip here for you from one of your colleagues. This is Dr. Chris Hogue, president of the Consultant Specialists of BC. He talked to me in an earlier show, and he'll describe here a situation with one of his own patients waiting for cancer care. Let's have a listen, then I'll get your thoughts. I had a patient in my office yesterday who I referred a month ago to an oncologist and he came in to, to touch base and make sure things were moving along and he got an appointment, but it's still two months down the line. That's a three-month wait for an oncologist for a patient that I've already identified has a significant cancer and, and needs to be seen. That's okay. not right. So a three-month wait for someone who's already been diagnosed with cancer. I mean, you know, when it comes to cancer treatment, like time is of the essence, right? Definitely. It depends on the cancer, of course. You know, yeah, the, a sure. cancer is not a cancer is not a cancer, right? And so when our specialist colleagues, including Dr. Hogue, identifies a cancer that requires urgent treatment, and that is delayed, that is a huge problem and barrier in the system for both patient care, but also, to be frank, for provider satisfaction. It's frustrating to see patients in follow-up who can't access the diagnostics and the services that are needed at a time when cancer screening and cancer things were delayed through COVID. Right, and we're talking about a healthcare system now. There are so many different pressure points all throughout the system. I mean, waits for cancer care is one thing, but we've heard a lot about emergency room hours being shut down or cut back. And I know this is, you visited uh, some communities where this has been quite an acute problem recently. In fact, even rolling up your sleeves and, and, and helping out in some of these emergency rooms. So I want to ask you about that. Let me play a clip here for you from uh, the health minister, Adrian Dix, saying that, you know, we know that the, these emergency room services are, are under strain in some of these small towns. They're doing, the government's doing something about it. Let's have a listen to him here. It involves, uh, first of all, stabilizing the hours. We have three hospitals in uh, the region, in uh, Port McNeil, Port Hardy, and on Cormoran Island. So stabilizing the hours is providing incentives to more easily recruit staff, particularly uh, nurses who are needed, obviously, when you want to keep an emergency department open. Okay, he's describing the situation there in the northern part of Vancouver Island, where I know, Dr. Green, you were just up there, right? Yeah, I spent Family Day weekend working the emergency room in Port Hardy, which is currently open 7 a.m. till 5 p.m. due to a lack of, of staff, uh, physician, nursing, etc. And so I had the privilege to work alongside some really hardworking nurses and nurse managers and lab technicians trying to really hold the doors open to serve their community. 
Yeah, well, you know what? I tip my hat to you because I, I think that's very cool that you actually got in there and, and pitched in and helped out. Like, is that... How does that work? Like, if you're a if you're a doctor, you can just volunteer to help out in some of these emergency rooms. Is that how it works? Or <laughs> so I, I have the privilege of being a rural family doctor for now, going on 18 years, and so the privilege of that is I get to be able to do emergency medicine, family practice, palliative care, inpatient care, outreach clinic, et cetera, et cetera. And so I am I've um, been practicing rural family practice for years and have worked in several emergency rooms across the province. And so it was relatively easy for me, as I already have privileges in island health, to be able to add Port Hardy Hospital to my credentialing, and then was able to jump in on a relatively short notice to try and fill some gaps, as, again, those hardworking physicians in Port Hardy are trying to do the best they can for their patients with limited resources. And what did you see and experience there while you did that? How much stress and strain is, is happening there in the system? And so first and foremost, that's a spectacular part of the province. And so I told all of my colleagues up there I would say that because it really is a magical place with, you know, thousands of years of history and some beautiful environment. The physicians and nurses and staff there are definitely under duress. They're trying to, you know, fill the shifts and make sure there's enough people working to take care of the patients. The patients desperately want access in their home community or in their region. It's already a space that's limited, you know, with with diagnostic services and labs and and staff. And so to add a layer of closing the emergency room is hard. I would have to see patients until 5 o'clock and then decide if they needed to go to another hospital, whether they could go home or come back tomorrow to be reevaluated. And that just puts strain on everybody involved. What do they need up there? They need more doctors, more nurses? Yes, and lab <laughs> technicians and x-ray technicians and nurse practitioners and physician assistants and any piece of the puzzle that fits together. This is the beautiful part about rural medicine is that it really is a team and people are working together right now in that part of the, the province, as in many parts of the province, you just need more people doing the work. And how you do that work is critically important to ask the community, to ask the physicians, to ask the nurses what's best going to serve their needs as they are the ones on the ground. And one of the reasons why I wanted to be there to you know, drink coffee and talk in the hospital, to be able to meander through the community and really understand the challenges that are being faced. Right, and this is something that the health minister has talked about as well, the need to recruit more of these professionals and get them on the job. So let me play another clip here for you from Adrian Dix, the health minister, and get your thoughts on this point. Let's have a listen. The issue has been there for some time. We have uh, three small hospitals that are dependent on a small number of doctors and of nurses. And so we have to take, I think, uh, in that region, some really strong action to recruit people there to ensure that there's stability there, which is important, not just for healthcare in the region, but for the whole economy of the region. So that's what we're doing. Okay, so he's describing, once again, the situation in northern Vancouver Island, where you were just in the emergency room there in Port Hardy helping out. And so he talks about, yeah, we need to recruit more professionals, which, I, you know, it seems like just sort of stating the obvious, but how do they do that? Like, are these, are these professionals available? How do they get them to go to a small town and work? And there's a multitude of ways to do that. Part of it, the most productive way, I think, is to have a really strong team that brings people in who are able to do the work. The other ways include things like bringing agency nurses in, so nurses who are paid to come for short stints, 
uh, doing what they call return of services. And so if you're an international medical graduate, then you come and serve, you know, a, a two years to three years. There's a multitude of ways. I think the most important part is that no one, myself included, can come from the outside and tell the local people how to do that. It really needs to be a groundswell of community advocacy alongside the physicians and the providers to make this a reality. And, and I hope, Mike, this show and the article that I put out last week starts to shine light. And we've already seen some physicians reach out from Alberta or other parts of Vancouver Island to say, hey, maybe I could come help out for the weekend or for a week. That's not a long-term solution. What Minister Dix is talking about is really significant investment in long-term planning. But in the short term, it's really, you know, people like me who has a weekend here or there to try and just keep the community momentum going forward when it comes to healthcare yeah. services. Dr. Joshua Gregane is my guest, president of the Doctors of BC. And the whole system seems to be feeling the stress and the strain, not only uh, where you were for a few days on Vancouver Island, but the north, the interior of the province. We've heard about emergency rooms being shut down. I mean, even in big cities. Later on the show, I'll be speaking to the head of the Surrey Board of Trade, who is very concerned about hospital services in Surrey and the growing population there and the need to expand services there. Would you say, with a provincial budget just a few days away here, we've got the budget coming up on Tuesday, government sitting on a very large budget surplus right now, where do you think some of these resources should go? Like, what do you think is, like, the top priority in our system right now? Well, I think over the last year, alongside the Ministry of Health, we, Doctors of BC, have been reflecting the public's desire for primary care. And so I can't help but say primary care has been a, an ongoing investment and needs to be more because primary care and family physicians are the access point to the entire system, including health care and, and, sorry, including cancer care. The hope is then better primary care sort of decants or removes people from the emergency room. But I also recognize that both emergency services, surgical services, cancer clinic, and diagnostics are all, you know, also under strain. So if there was a singular easy answer, Mike, I would be happy to give it. We would put the money there and be finished. But it's a complex yeah. environment with lots and lots and lots of patient needs that we're doing our best. And the government will hopefully continue to flag more resources towards healthcare. Yeah, and when you say primary care, how do you define that? So we're talking like family doctors, walk-in clinics? Yeah, so in a perfect scenario, everyone deserves a family doctor, right? So everyone has a family physician or a nurse practitioner that they are attached to or they can see on a regular basis. I was spent some of this week uh, in one in some of the First Nations communities along the West Coast, and they really not only want access, but they want someone they can trust and build a relationship with. So the, the pinnacle is everyone has a family physician, nurse practitioner that can be involved in their care and help navigate. And so that's really the primary care system. More and more, we're talking about a primary care team or a primary care network at your patient medical home, which is, again, your offices, where you be able to access a multitude of services, family doctors, nurses, nurse practitioners, counselors, pharmacists, that can help you get the care that you need when it comes to your health. Thank you for your time today. I really appreciate it. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. Okay, here we go now with condo renovations. Now, here's the deal on this. Can you renovate your condo? The answer is typically no. And the reason for that, of course, especially if you live in a multi-unit building, 
you can't start taking down walls and that kind of thing if you're doing like a major renovation. You might be able to do a few smaller things. But people try to do some of these renovations, you can get into a real jam. Now, remember, this is probably the most famous recent case of this. Guy in the West End of Vancouver decided he wanted a open concept living room. I think maybe sometimes people are watching too many of those home renovation reality shows. They always seem to be knocking down walls on those shows to go open concept. So this guy decided he wanted an open concept condo and started knocking down some walls. Didn't work out very well for the guy in the condo unit above him, though. Have a listen to this report now. CTV. I think he just thought, oh, yeah, I'm just going to have an open concept. Now I have no support, which is why you can feel that I'm sinking. Cracks began appearing in Wayne Morrissey's West End condo after his downstairs neighbor took out several walls. Now I'm up to seven cracks in my ceiling, and it seems like every week thereabouts I get a new crack. I'm afraid that when I walk along my floors, I'm going to, you know, fall through them. I'm afraid my cupboard's going to fall off in my kitchen. Yes, poor guy. This ended up in a big legal fight over that one. But check this out now, because there's two sides to this coin. Guy in Burnaby, he lives in a strata unit. Now, this was a, a townhouse, but it's a strata home. So he's living in his strata home. He wanted to knock down a wall in his townhouse. Wanted to put in a new laundry room. Strata was not having any of that. They got into a big fight. They said this is against the rules. Now, this particular guy was saying, look, it's not going to cause any damage to any nearby homes or the guy next to me. I'm bringing in a structural engineer here to have this all checked out. We're getting the proper permits done. It's not going to hurt anyone. It ends up in the Civil Resolution Tribunal, and the guy who wanted to knock the walls down ended up winning. So he was allowed to go ahead with that condo renovation. So sometimes you win, sometimes you lose on these. Has this ever happened to you? If you live in a condo, please call me and let me know. If you've ever had a fight over a renovation in your strata unit, maybe someone in the building was trying to do a reno, please let me know. 604 280 9898 is the number. 604 280 9898. Star 9898 on your cell. There have been lots of changes in condo rules here in British Columbia, including the rule brought in by David Eby, the Premier. All condos now available to be rented out if the owner wants to rent them out. Why did they do that? Well, Premier is saying we want to create more rental properties. Have a listen to what he had to say here. Is David Eby. It is simply unacceptable that a British Columbian who is searching Craigslist for a place to rent can't find a home, and somebody who owns a condo is not permitted to rent that home to that individual. Okay, let's discuss now with my guest, Tony Giaventu, Executive Director, Condo Homeowners Association of BC. Very pleased to welcome him back. Hey, Tony. Hey, Mike. How are you this morning? I'm doing great. Thanks a lot for doing this. So let's talk about the reno issue here. Typically, if someone's in a strata unit and they want to do some sort of a reno on the unit, is that typically not allowed? 
Actually, no. Most renovations within strata lots um, are permitted under the bylaws. And the bylaws are pretty clear that strata corporations can't unreasonably refuse it. And, you know, it's a little exchange here. Provided you, the owner of the unit, um, ensure that all building permits, any type of engineering requirements, or any other conditions that might affect the building, you meet all those conditions. The strata pretty much has to reasonably grant permission. Okay, that's interesting. Now, in this particular case that we're looking at here in, in, uh, in Richmond, where the guy is living in a, a condo townhouse, wanted to do what sounded like a fairly simple reno. Now, he was taking up part of a load-bearing wall, to create a little new laundry room in his unit. But he was saying, look, I've got a structural engineer in place. This is going to be fine. We can do this. It ends up in a big fight in front of the civil civil resolution tribunal. Is that, have you seen fights like that end up getting, uh, you know, guys duking it out in front of the, in front of a judge? Oh yeah. And I've seen them go both ways too. I've seen the scenario where um, uh, an owner or somebody comes in and they buy as a speculator and they want to flip the unit in six months um, and they do massive renovations, cause all kinds of damage to the building and the strata corporation and the adjacent owners are left with a real mess. But I've also seen the other side where an owner goes to strata and say, hey, look, I'd like to do a renovation. I'd like to remove my tub, put in a steam shower tub. We are going to, you know, we'll get all the building permits. I've got an engineer who's going to set up everything so we have no water conditions. And then the strata just outright denies the request. There is no good reason for denying the request if the owner is prepared to meet all the conditions so that there's no risk to any other party. Now, how would you advise people, like, let's say if someone's listening now and they're thinking of maybe doing a little project in their condo, would I guess you your the advice should be don't try to hide this right don't try to sneak it under the table or do it secretly or without a permit you got to tell people what's going on right yeah and the most common one is people will lift their carpets up and put some sort of hard surface engineered flooring or something in forgetting oh. that those those carpets especially in wood frame buildings those carpets are a key part of the sound suppression between units and the moment you put any type of solid surface floor on you've you've increased the sound transmission tenfold and all of the all of the sound suppression that you put in under the floor will not cover that so simple things can have a huge impact on buildings and and little things like um uh changing the location of your kitchen sink um or renovating your bathroom or an electrical service doesn't seem like that big a deal on the surface but the difficulty is um every time you change plumbing systems or ventilation systems if you're in a multifamily building, it's going to have an impact on other units. And that's what strata councils are usually most concerned about. Okay, Tony, real quickly here, and then we'll fit in a quick break. What is the situation now with the new rental rules? We played that clip from David Eby. All condos now available to be rented out if the owner wants to rent them out. How is that working out for, for the people you represent? Uh, it's it's fine. It's it's you know the okay. transition. It it doesn't happen overnight with tenants and with rentals. Um, we haven't actually seen any increase in rentals. I think our our biggest challenge on that front is still the number of units across the province that are really being consumed by Airbnbs and short term accommodations. That's that's really where the accommodation losses are the worst and where they're mounting. Um, yeah. The other thing that's happened is the age restriction was was basically isolated now it's only 55 and over um and so depending on what kind of bylaw it is 
for all of the stratas across the province that jumped in and have amended to 55 and over. Any tenants going into those buildings also have to meet those age restriction requirements. How many buildings have converted to 55 plus now? Uh, we're at a couple hundred now. Wow! You know, we've been we've been monitoring and watching what's what what we've received, what's what people have confirmed, the actual meetings where they've been passed. Sometimes they don't pass. Some strata corporations have just said, you know what, we'll take it as it comes and we'll deal with that. Others have said, no, we definitely want to restrict age restrictions. And surprisingly enough, even within the downtown of our metro cities, um, where there's a good mix of, you know, younger middle-aged families, they're still all actively voting for the age restrictions because, A, if they're living in the building, they're going to be exempt. And they're trying to find a way of limiting the exposure to rentals. Okay. We're talking condos with Tony Giaventu. we got lots of calls here. James in White Rock. Hi, James. Go ahead. Hi. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. I have a, uh, I live in a condo in Sussuri, and I have the uh, a person above me did exactly what you said. They pulled out the carpet, put hardwood in, and now I can hear this piece of spaghetti fall off the counter onto the floor. And what I want to know is, because they didn't get the strata approval to change the flooring, can I tear out the ceiling in my uh, condo, put a sound barrier in there and ask the strata or ask for the tenant above me to pay for half of that as a result of them not getting approval for their renovation? Whoa. Okay, Tony, what do you think? I know that seems like a tempting op- um, option, doesn't it? But no, you can't. And you would be actually going into the structure of the building. So stay away from doing anything like that. But what you need to do is file a complaint written with your strata council, request a hearing, ask them what they're doing about the unauthorized alteration and the installation of the hard surface floor. Um, Strata Corporation may actually um, have to get to the point of going to the tribunal and getting an order. Um, And it could be something as significant as ordering over the carpeting over top of what was installed that was unauthorized because of the excessive noise. Your, your, your issue really, though, is the noise complaints, and you're absolutely right. Um, it's, you know, it's like dropping a marble onto the face of a guitar when somebody puts in hard surface flooring. Oh. It has a huge impact. Yeah, yeah. James, good luck with that. Mike in Vernon. Hi, Mike, go ahead. Hey, good morning, guys. Hey, just on that flooring issue, there are very, very good sound barriers that you can put down before you put the hardwood flooring down. That makes it that brings it to the same level as carpet, but uh, that's not why I called. Um, so, question is: in the case that Mike described, where the guy wanted to make a renovation, put a laundry room in and stuff, and he had done everything correctly, and then the strata um, turned him down, and he wound up having to go to the tribunal. It delayed him and everything else. Who's responsible for any legal costs or delay costs or anything in a situation like that, where he was 100% in the right? Tony. Yeah, that's, um, you know, it depends on what jurisdiction you go to, but the tribunal these days are awarding costs for legal services and costs and damages. Um, but generally, you know, if you're an owner and you've had the burden of some significant cost delays, maybe your unit didn't sell because um, of a uh, strata corporation um, basically obstructing what you were doing and not complying with their bylaws, you can definitely seek damages for all of those costs. Um, don't plan on getting them all back, but but there can be some punitive measures for strata councils and corporations who are basically not complying with their own bylaws. Let's go to Judy on the line in Surrey. Hi, Judy, go ahead. 
Hi there. Uh, my question is about uh, owners who have a designated parking stall in the building. And um, if this owner has uh, now sold their car, however, they do um, have the, they do sometimes drive um, somebody else's car, borrow their car, and then they they want to be able to you know come in, come and go, and also have visitors come in. Um, I I have been um, told that. Um, other people can park in your stall, and that because I don't have a car now, it's it's pretty hard to um, have the need to have that stall. So I'm just very confused because then when I come in with with a car full of groceries, or it, it just it can be any time during the night. My my car is being, my stall is being used as wow. a go to place, and I'm being told that I need to go elsewhere. And who am I to say if I like if you don't have a car, too bad? Well, isn't it your parking spot though? It is how so, it is, and so what I what I find very odd is is that um, I'm being told that I'm I'm not being reasonable because I don't have an actual car there all the time. Okay, well thinking, let's yeah, let's find let's so see what Tony can I can I actually get someone to tow it without um, because the strata won't, won't do it they won't do that. Tony, they, what do you Tony, what do you think? Go ahead. Uh, well, parking stalls are probably one of the hugest bones of contention in many strata corporations, and that's because there are so many different types of designations, ownership, or allocation. So we'd have to look really close and see how they're designated. In many strata corporations, though, it's common property. So you have to look at the bylaws and rules to see how parking is allocated. Most important, parking is allocated to the strata lot not allocated to an owner, not allocated to a car. It's allocated to the strata lot. And if the, the bylaws or rules or the parking plan, or if it's limited common property, or there's some sort of license of use on it, um, the strata council might actually not be able to change the, the allocation of it or the use of it. Um, owners won't have any success in towing. A towing company won't come into a strata corporation and tow a vehicle from common property, they'll need the consent of the strata corporation to do that. So my suggestion, do a bit of homework, look at how the parking's designated, look at the bylaws and rules, figure out how those determine the parking, look mm -hmm. at any type of written decisions from council, and then determine, you know, if, if there is some other alternative. Um, I think, um, Judy, you might want to call our office and get one of our advisors to help you out, sort this little mess out. Oh, that's a, that's a good idea. Where can people reach you, Tony? We've got 30 seconds here. Uh, so go to the CHOA website for all of our contact, uh, choa.bc.ca, or yep. we have a toll-free across the province, 877-353-2462. Tony, thank you for coming on today. Mike, always a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.